that's what this executive order is speaking to. It's those folks that still have power, don't want to change the conversation and don't feel like they need to really um, address a wrong that they don't feel they've done themselves. An executive order from President Trump last month put an end to diversity training for the federal government as well as its contractors, subcontractors, and grantees. While it doesn't affect most private corporations or state and local governments, it does provide an alarming precedent that threatens to undo the work that movements like Black Lives Matter and those working in the field of diversity and inclusion have been working so hard to achieve. On today's episode of the Colectivo podcast, we discuss what this signals to organizations in our country and break down the history and importance of diversity and inclusion initiatives in the U.S. We're joined today by Herman Cash, Director, Diversity and Equity Leadership Development at the Leadership for Educational Equity. I met Herman when he was former program director of the New American Leaders Project, an organization leading a movement for inclusive democracy by preparing first and second generation Americans to use their power and potential in elected office. And we're also joined by Joe Larios, who I just found out was also part of the New American Leaders Project. And I will let uh, Natalia, our co-host, introduce Joe. Sure. Well, I'm so happy to welcome Joe, who I feel confident in saying is a friend and colleague now in the consulting space, who is a consultant with Insight Consultants locally, but also a well-known community organizer working with various organizations still uh, throughout our communities here in Arizona. Welcome, Herman, and welcome, Joe. Can't wait to have this conversation. So we'll be talking a lot about President's Executive Order, but before we get into that, I want to talk about the concept of diversity and inclusion. I want to talk about what sparked the need for these types of training in, in our country and how the industry has evolved to this point. Edmond, I know you, you work a lot in, in, in diversity and equity now. What do you know about the history of DNI? why we need it at this time? Um, thank you, Josh. First of all, um, thank you for having me uh, on your podcast, and I'm excited to share some of the experiences that I've had um, in my prior job and in my current role. Um, I think that uh, those experiences have um, provided me with a context uh, that I operate in now in terms of the need for DNI. Um, we, uh, in our organization, call it DEI, so diversity, equity, and inclusion, but I know that term is used pretty um, commonly in terms of uh, organizations really trying to push the envelope in talking about inclusion, representation, diversity, uh, inclusion efforts, um, you name it. Um, I'd say that the history uh, that I, as I understand it, is really rooted in um, representation. Like that was the first need for uh, the lack of representation in so many sectors across our country. Um, uh, uh, and particularly my experience with that was in government, so in politics. Um, there's just a you know yawning gap in uh, representation of women, people of color, LGBTQ um, uh, folks, candidates um, that are just not being represented in policy uh, because of that uh, lack of representation. And that then uh, means disparities in outcomes in um, just the way that people are, even the narratives that we have about uh, communities around the country. And so uh, that really has uh, you know, spurred the, the movement, but I think it's become much more um, uh, inclusive, if you will, um, of like many other facets of uh, representation that are not just um, diversity and inclusion, that are not just about having more people at the table, but about making sure that those voices are given the adequate space, um, the, you know, it, that it's not just the mainstream uh, dominant culture that is really uh, taking, you know, all the space in whatever tables we're talking about. 
That's that's a good a good point, Joe. I'll bring you into this. How much progress have you seen in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field as far as actual changes that have been made over the last few decades? Over the last few decades, we have seen some improvements, right? Like like there's there's more people in different sectors representing, and like it it has been helpful to see different representation and and representation matters and is important um but i i i think what we've also seen is a co-option um of the intent and so if if diversity was really born out of a recognition that so many of our institutions were homogenous in their like white male right kind of institutionalized power um and that you know the history of this country is that that's part of its narrative of colonization and domination um and so of course it would reflect in our institutions right that get born out of that history um and if if diversity was about addressing that homogeneity um then it's definitely beyond just about representation, right? It's, it's actually about power. And it's about how, how do we take power that has been hoarded um, and, and centered on a very narrow definition of who should hold power. Again, if that's like white, male, able-bodied, English speaking, um, you know, degreed and accredited, um, if that is the way that we understood who should hold power, then diversity is about moving away from that. Um, and, and unfortunately, because diversity in its language and rhetoric, um, in terms of how folks have tried to address this issue, has largely um, removed this idea and this concept of power out of the discussion. And so it tends to be almost solely about representation. It's like, oh, well, we got X, we got, we got black representation, we could check the box. We got brown representation, we could check the box. We got women, <laughs> we could check the box. Um, and it, it became more about box checking rather than a redistribution of power and, and who gets to determine, right, how power and decisions and resources um, get allocated. And so that, you know, that's the, the thing I would see is like there was original intent that has long since, you know, been co-opted um, and, and watered down um, from that original intent. That's, that's huge to think about power. A lot of times people don't talk about, about that as much in these spaces, right? Just had to call that out. <laughs> Who's got the power and how do you redistribute power? That's a big one. So if you're thinking about that, if you think about power and, and you're thinking about what companies that have that power and how they're re redistributing that, I constantly see new uh, job openings for, for DNI fields, including chief diversity officers. We're getting DNI or DEI in the C-suite, which is great. But do you guys think the companies are doing enough for DEI or DNI? And do you think these initiatives will just be temporary? Are they just something that's come across because of Black Lives Matter and other recent movements? Or do you think it's going to be a permanent fixture? I would say that the most like diversity equity officers 
tend to be people of color. And in my experience, they tend to be people who actually don't have a lot of history or experience or like invested scholarship even in, in the concept. And so it's, you know, it's hard, it, it largely turns into like this feel good project that we're gonna figure out as we go um, rather than like a, a, a very intentional dedicated office um, that's re really trying to figure out how to go deeper. And so I find that most of those, those offices tend to be pretty surface um, and kind of tokenizing, to be honest with you. Like that, that's what I mainly see yeah. is the folks who occupy those roles tend to be more tokenized to buffer from the hard conversations while giving the appearance of stepping into the uncomfortability of, of talking about race. That's such a great point, Joe. I couldn't agree um, more with that. Um, just like framing, I think uh, you calling empower is such an important um, point to make. Um, it reminds me of an article I read where, uh, you know, Black Lives Matter um, really uh, started um, uh, prompting a conversation around the country and many uh, organizations and many nonprofits and many companies about the need for diversity and representation um, and a little bit more than uh, than it was in previous years. Um, and so uh, I found it fascinating that that article pointed out that the cities with black chief officers actually had, uh, were you know, they weren't uh, advancing in the ways that you would think in terms of um, minority, uh, you know, complaints, if you will, or like people of color uh, raising complaints around uh, police um, abuse and, and police misconduct. And so just the fact that there was a figurehead uh, that, you know, shared the identity of folks in that community didn't necessarily mean automatically that these uh, policies and outcomes would change. And so I think that power is, is a really critical component of that and who's, who holds that power and their, um, and their way of operating, honestly, and their way of uh, thinking about redistribution of power is really critical. I think many uh, chief diversity offices around the country right now are uh, kind of like middlemen between the, you know, the the folks at the top and the folks, uh, you know, the, the the staff, right, and particularly the staff of color. And so uh, it's, you know, I, I feel very grateful that I work for an organization that's been trying to, you know, address that directly, like not trying to say, hey, there's a opportunity for us to say we're doing the checkboxes and we're doing all these great things um, in terms of, you know, things that we can put on our grants, to be honest with you, right? Uh, but uh, we've been having hard conversations with our staff about um, what it means to uh, be a staff of color in this moment, the burdens that we carry, uh, what does that mean for our white uh, leadership and um, how they can really be allies and uh, advocates for the issues that are really affecting, whether that's uh, the outcomes or even just the emotional labor that we have to carry as staff, given everything that's going on just this summer, right? Um, and so I think that those are very valid points and I, I couldn't agree more. So that really gets me back to our main topic, which is the president's executive order. Here's a snippet from it. This destructive ideology is grounded in misrepresentations of our country's history and its role in the world. Although presented as new and revolutionary, they resurrect the discredited notions of the 19th century apologists for slavery. Our founding documents rejected these racialized views of America, which were soundly defeated on the bloodstained battlefields of the Civil War. 
yet they are now being repackaged and sold as cutting-edge insights. They are designed to divide us and to prevent us from uniting as one people in pursuit of one common destiny for our great country. What are your guys' thoughts on some of uh, the accusations and the terminology used in the executive order? I mean, I think it's white supremacy uh, showing its, you know, rearing its ugly head um, over and over again. And this administration has not been shy to uh, advocate on behalf of white supremacist views. Um, it's, uh, but it is a sentiment that many folks have, whether they realize it's rooted in that um, across the country. Many um, organizations are grappling with this idea that they're like, we're, we're doing nothing wrong, or I haven't done anything, quote unquote, wrong. Um, my, you know, parents didn't. Um, maybe their ancestors did, but they don't feel. And so there's this like uh, reckoning that's going on. Um, and so uh, there is a conversation to be had. Um, and there's uh, many different ways of approaching it, depending on where folks at. I tend to work for a very progressive organization. And so folks, I, you know, it's the reality of um, the work that I do, but there's a lot of white guilt in this space, right? And so I think about how that, um, how that manifests in the ways that folks uh, show up in these conversations and the ways that they advocate for um, differences and policy changes um, and how they carry or don't carry uh, that work. Um, and that's not the same uh, in, you know, what I imagine uh, police unions and uh, other instit institutional uh, organizations that have had power for many years that are not willing to let it go. And I think that, that what, that's what this executive order is speaking to. It's those folks that still have power, don't wanna change the conversation and don't feel like they need to really um, address a wrong that they don't feel they've done themselves um, explicitly. Power is a very uh, intoxicating drug. And when you have it, it's very hard to not want to have it anymore, right? Or to do without, or even to redistribute to let it others have some. So I think, yeah, we're seeing the interconnectedness of all of this as well. But This very like simplistic view of history, right? And wrong um, would stand because quite frankly, not a lot of folks are really connected to history. And, you know, there, there, is, um, there was a, a study, not a study, a, um, a body of work that came out of indigenous-centered organizing that talked about the culture of white supremacy, where it's not just about phenotype, right? Like you're the color of your skin, but it's, it's actually an entire set of behaviors that we come to understand and assume as a standard, uh, like a, a standard way of being. This is just how we do business. And in naming white supremacy culture, one of the big ones is like ahistoric, right? It, white supremacy culture is absolutely dependent on a lack of history, on, on being able to not have to contend or to be selective about what history is and, and how history should be remembered is absolutely a fundamental tenet of white supremacy culture. And, you know, if we, if we're looking to combat like what is otherwise an absurd claim, it's absurd, right? Like if you just do any little bit of history, <laughs> like the absurdity that you're just gonna go to the founding documents and then not talk about everything else from segregation and redlining right, to like our current crisis at the border, um, it's just, it's ridiculous. But if we're ahistoric, and if, if we come to just simply accept that history isn't important and that we can conduct business 
without having to acknowledge or consider history, then we fall into that white supremacy culture. And, and I bring that full circle because I would challenge any one of us to find a diversity program run by any you know, uh, uh, corporation or institution and tell me how many of their diversity programs are absolutely rooted and are in conversation with history, where the history of where they are, the history of their brand, the history of who they serve. You know, if there's no, if there's no connection to why diversity is important in your field to historic need for diversity, they're also playing into white supremacy culture. Um, because if diversity can be ahistoric, then it doesn't have to carry any meaning or relevance. I appreciated that. Um, once again, Joe, that framing, because it, it, it allows folks to understand how the benefits of this historical, like, events that have happened, you know, the historical suppression of, um, and oppression of so many um, uh, folks of color in this country throughout our history, uh, you know, Native folks, uh, you know, Black folks, uh, you know, currently, um, you, you know, kids in cages, right? Like that seems to be something we've like come to accept as part of American life. Uh, folks don't realize how they are benefiting from those systems. And those are the conversations that I believe um, are really critical for folks to understand what needs to be done now, right? And that needs to be rooted in history for that to really, uh, you know, come to pass. I think also, um, I'm not sure if it was the same kind of body of work that you mentioned, Joe, but uh, we uh, started you know, uh, referencing this, uh, this one paper that talked about how white supremacy shows up at work and white dominant culture specifically. And uh, ahistorical a, a is definitely one of the things that's brought up. But other things that you wouldn't think um, as much are like urgency, the sense of constant urgency that we're all operating under, right, is also how white supremacy shows up at work. Um, uh, you know, the, the need for everything to be rooted in quote unquote data and do documentation, right? where Native folks um, have had other ways of uh, oral history and um, sharing, you know, uh, information. And so I think those are, um, you know, things to like keep in mind as, as, as we think about ways that we can be uh, advancing, you know, um, uh, other, other approaches to, to this uh, uh, anti-racist work. I just have to chime in and add to that as someone who is uh, newer in this space in terms of doing the work what you all just called out in terms of especially recognizing the white supremacy culture as it is echoed in this, this is just how we do business. And this, this element of sense of urgency and everything needs to be data driven or at least data informed. Um, I don't know if you all have had this experience or not, but definitely I'm seeing that come into conflict, almost natural conflict with really getting it, like doing the work. And there's this tension that's created there. And I always call it like the arbitrary deadlines and the arbitrary, like where did those come from and why, you know? Um, but it seems to really, I mean, it's really hard to move people beyond that. And people of all backgrounds, right? People of all colors you know, right, who really buy into that. Um, and that's that's been an interesting thing to not only observe, but also, a part of frankly right um where's my role in that but anyway i just thought it was really interesting wanted to call that out because a lot of times we don't think about those things as being related as well and you know if you think about diversity uh, uh efforts to try to get more diversity diverse staff in your company there are studies as far as 
how um, how that actually improves a company's bottom line, how it improves a company's thinking. And obviously, if a company has the same type of people, whether they be racially, you know, gender, you know, everything exactly the same, they're going to think the same. If you bring somebody you know, that's diverse, you'll have them think differently. I was reading today on LinkedIn from a Yale professor who he has a formula for genius. And he says, if you're a contrarian thinker, then you're on the path to genius. And a lot of times the diverse voice is the contrarian thinker in that room, you know, and obviously we don't always get those diverse voices in the C-suite or even in other executive levels. A lot of the diversity is on a lower level, but as the, the diversity work improves and those diverse voices get to, to, to higher places, that company has an opportunity to see things differently. With that being said, with this executive order, a lot of companies are starting to put DNI trainings on hold. I mean, I haven't seen this much DNI work <laughs> in a really long time. Like everybody is is on it. I think what the president's order does is it gives a, a temporary pass to like the big institutions. Right, because you can be insulated somewhat if you're a really large institution and like, you know, your dollars are dependent on federal dollars and not like on individual small donors, for example. Um, you're a little insulated to having to not have to deal with it. What I find more often than not, the overt white supremacy and behavior of this administration has put so many people in a state of crisis where race is so clearly at the center of what people need to be talking about, right? You see it in COVID, right? <laughs> uh, we were seeing it in climate impact before COVID hit, um, that I think people are pissed and, and they're in a state of trauma. And it's really hard to do business as usual when you have such a large critical mass of people in trauma. And I think what I, that's what I mainly see people responding to for these DIE contracts is they're like, oh my gosh, our bullshit basic program that used to be good enough is no longer good enough because people are pissed and super triggered about race because of what's going on. And we don't know how to hold this and we're really scared, please help us. <laughs> like, and that, you know, that doesn't matter about Trump's executive order, people are scared <laughs> about how to deal with angry people of color. And that's, honestly, that's what I feel is, is, is driving and fueling <laughs> all these new contracts. Well, Josh, one of the things I'll add is that I, I read about, I think it was Wells Fargo and Microsoft, they have like big, um, basically plans to double, or I think, double or maybe it was 5X as, mu as many black managers and, uh, and executives within five years. And they were asked, you know, will they face penalties because of this um, order? And they believe that it will not, basically it doesn't violate. So they're basically, they're pressing on. So it look, you know, it, I hope that more companies are, are not abandoning efforts, um, but that's just what I've heard from two of those really big companies that have, you know, obviously those are huge programs to double the management in black um, employees. 
That's a good point. You know, actually, one of the things that in the New York Times article I was reading is that the Labor Department has initiated an investigation into Microsoft's commitment to double the number of Black employees by 2025. But like you said, you know, obviously there's nothing illegal about that. They know that they're on the right side of history, and hopefully they'll continue that. But uh, you know, there's also colleges being targeted. A Justice Department sued Yale University for supposedly discriminating against white and Asian American applicants, and the Trump administration opened a civil rights investigation of Princeton University after the school publicly acknowledged a history of systemic racism. There's definitely a push beyond the executive order on DNI programs and other similar-minded pushes as well. So do you guys think that there'll be any other backlash from these? Or do you think, like Eric said, companies know they're doing the right thing, there's, there's no legal repercussions for what they're doing? One of the things that I, I find really fascinating about this uh, conversation that um, is omitted in many spaces is how capitalism and anti-capitalism is really rooted as in, it's, it's like all part of the same beast. Um, and that's one of the hardest things for corporations and companies to talk about. Um, I've been on my own personal anti-capitalist crusade. And, uh, and you know, it's hard to do that when like, I, I always joke with my friends. It's like, it feels like we're champagne socialists. Right, like we're we're talking about the system being broken over brunch, but it you know it's it's one of the things that like we we ourselves have to like we're we're in a capitalist society and we are um having to like navigate the world. We want to make sure that in the, in the context of COVID, that our families are able to make it through, that they have jobs, that they're able to like put food on the table, right? But um, but we're also realizing that a lot of the reasons that we are in the situations that we are is because capitalism has made profit the the end all be all right and people don't matter uh, you know corporations are people and that's really the people that matter at the policy level it seems that's for the federal government and so there's a backlash on both ends i believe um i think uh many corporations are doing this for the bottom line they're realizing like you said josh um that uh this is good for their companies but at the same time people are just realizing that they shouldn't be um you know just labor right we are people we are humans we are uh, you know, contributing um, members of society, whether we have a job or not, and COVID has brought that to, um, you know, the, to the forefront of the conversation without even, um, you know, realizing that, that that's where we are now. So the, one reason why a movement like Black Lives Matter is so important and should be to all of us um, is, is in large part, because it's also queer femme led. And I think that oftentimes gets like not as much play or not as much attention and acknowledgement for like how important that is. Because, you know, the again, the sentiment of, of we're not gonna take it anymore, absolutely part of the messaging of Black Lives Matter. And in a lot of ways, that disruption, again, is, is the vanguard for all of these new opportunities that have opened up. And something to keep in mind is they're also not like you're not going to see Black Lives Matter calling for like diversity, equity, and, and inclusion. Like they're calling for abolition. They're calling for like liberation, transformation. That that's a whole different level of verbiage. And you know, one thing we can expect from especially companies who are new to the conversation of diversity and equity who are feeling really pressed because of the culture, right? And the, the hotbed issues that are at play. Um, for those that are new, 
something that they will always do is default to their own comfort. And so that's where we will see straight, cisgendered, black and brown men suddenly become the standard of representation for like, what's the easiest way to check that box? Instead of really looking to diversify, when we say diversify like per perception and perspective, even wisdom and knowledge, if we're pulling, you know, if, if your history was hiring an Ivy League white male graduate and for your diversity, you know, push, you're going to hire a black male Ivy League graduate, um, that's not really that far off. It's not really that diverse of a hire. Um, and so I think that's also part of, of what Black Lives Matter as a movement has challenged us to consider and think about is how do we look to those most directly impacted um, for our diversity quotient, right? How do we look to those most marginalized and most impacted by, by the inequalities um, as who we're trying to include um, as part of their mandate? And I just think that's so important to acknowledge. That is really important. Thank you, Joe, for calling out. And I would add to that that it's not only inviting and making space at the proverbial table and saying, we want your voice, but also to be willing to take action on whatever is shared at that table to actually really take it into account. Because I think that's that next step almost, right? We can have them at the table, we can hear you, we can listen, but we're still gonna go ahead and make this decision over here and still do things the way that we've always done them and like either inevitably toe the line or, we find someone else to fill that spot is kind of the feeling, right? But to really take it to that level where not only are we allowing for the voice to be at the table, but we really are listening and hearing you. And now we're gonna take action on that to actually progress change based off of this input. Yeah, and speaking of taking action, as we wrap up, I'd love to hear each of your guys' advice to both large companies that still have the freedom and autonomy for the DNI initiatives and for smaller companies who fear a backlash for them, what's your advice for these uh, organizations? Like this work will be exponentially easier the sooner your internal team has a shared dialogue and, 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 and language around whiteness and white fragility. Because that's, that's the thing that oftentimes kills progress is white fragility. And, and white fragility in white people, white fragility in people of color. Um, Cause again, we're talking about a culture um, and, and those, those folks who have been acculturated in whiteness, which is all of us, if you grew up in this country, um, we have our triggers as well. And so the sooner we can identify them and start talking about them, the more we can actually progress through the work. That part. <laughs> Um, I just said in the space uh, that was an off-step call uh, that we were all raised in a racist society. So we all have racist tendencies and even mindsets. Um, and some folks took problems with that, but it's just, it's fact. Um, I'd say uh, in order to really um, advance this work, I think calling out how anti-racism will show up in our work, um, what that means for our, an organization, what that means for a company, uh, naming it and having hard conversations is really critical to um, advancing and progressing in this in any way that's going to be meaningful um, and it's going to actually create a policy change. I think folks um, constantly use the lived experiences of people of color 
um, as superficial ways of like saying, oh, well, you know, this person, this one person is emblematic of how we, you know, are, are, are changing our ways or have provided opportunities or are moving up the ladder, right? Um, I think when we get to the point of systemic change and systemic outcomes that really uh, show the lived experiences of entire communities, uh, gaining the benefits of this system, I think that's when we're going to be able to see uh, true um, transformational change. That's excellent. Thank you so much, both of you. And thank you to our, our co-host, Eric Diaz, Natalia Rodríguez Ceballos. We are Colectivo. On the next episode, we continue the conversation by exploring an executive order, establishing a national commission to support patriotic education. We break down what to expect and how it could affect ethnic study courses around the country. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you all so much. Thank you.